big thanks to our title sponsor, Blooming Smiles Pediatric Dentistry in Charlotte, North Carolina. They treat children of all ages and special needs patients and offer a holistic approach to ensure for every patient the well-being of mind, body, and spirit. Our episode sponsor is the Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Center. They are a leading national mental health care system dedicated to the treatment of eating disorders and primary mood, anxiety, and trauma-related disorders. For more information, please visit eatingrecoverycenter.com or pathlightbh.com. Welcome to Who You Calling Crazy. This is a unique mental health podcast. We are erasing the stigma and elevating and normalizing dialogue around mental health. Of course, we'll be sharing practical therapy tips, but most importantly, we'll be diving into the stories and vulnerability of people you know or want to know. I'm your host, Juliette Kuhnley. My name is Brooklyn Becker, and I, what do I do in this world? My goodness, <laughs> the list is endless. I wish I could actually find some focus because it's so disparate. I um, I grew up in North Carolina. I uh, started modeling at a very young age in high school. Um, I eventually transitioned into acting. I married my husband. We moved to Austin. We had two kids. Um, I've been on a television series for a long time. I started a tech company a few years ago and sold it in 2019. Um, and now I'm figuring out what the next chapter is. So I clearly have a very short attention span and like to dabble. I think I'm compensating for not ever going to college. I think that's what all of this is. If I were to dive into sort of the psychology behind it. There we go. Uh, a lot of compensation going on. But like things that you're passionate about. I mean, that's all any of us ever want, right? So yeah. Yes. I mean, I, I ultimately am just very curious and I love asking people questions. And if an opportunity arises, I'm sort of of the mindset of like, I'm not good at saying no to things, you know, I'm kind of like, this is why not? We can make it work. You know, I can figure this out. And those challenges are always really exciting to me. Um, I was just going to ask, are you a yes person? And it, yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Anymore. But in a creator, a creative and a creator. So I like that. Yeah. I mean, also, I think with that good comes sort of the negative, you know, I think, um, I think I, I wish when people ask me like what I would have told or what I, if I could tell my 18 year old self something, what would that be? Mm-hmm. It's that you can say no, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that there's still room for improvement and room for learning. And I want to be able to say no when needed. Um, but yeah, I'm a yes person. And I find that, that, um, you know, with that comes sort of some negative, but overall, like doors open mm-hmm. and opportunities happen. And even if they're failures, those experiences are so invaluable. That's right. Well, and then kids helps, it helps us to set boundaries once we have kids, because you just can't say yes all the time. And That's you right. want to, you want to be able to prioritize them and things start to shift. So, and how old are your littles? Uh, five and three. Yeah. Yeah, they are. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, it, the understatement of the century is that having children is like the most pivotal moment of mm-hmm. one's life. It has been for mine. Um, it changes, it changes everything mm-hmm. and change everything. And you're right. You're right. I think what's so beautiful about parenthood is the priority is totally off yourself and your own journey. Not totally, but, but the shift goes on to these other humans mm-hmm. and there's something so beautiful and sort of stepping outside of yourself. That's um, right and not having to be so heady about what your life looks like. And I think that's been a real gift for me. I love that. Yeah, there's a lot of freedom in that. What can you share with us about your um, mental health journey? Whatever comes to mind when I ask that. I mean, I think it's I think it's a journey that I'm still on. I think it's something we're all still on forever. I don't think it's anything that ends. I'm really happy that culturally we've gotten to a point where the conversation that you and I are having can happen. We can talk about mental health. Mm-hmm. Prioritizing it is culturally acceptable now and not only acceptable, but encouraged. I think that's a very new change that's in right. society. Um, you know, growing up, like we, my parents are, my whole family actually, they're all like first responders or in the medical profession. And so th- we all are very good at, not that I categorize myself as that by any means, but they were all very good at compartmentalizing because they, you know, saw every day was a life and death situation yes, and still is for them. Um, and then they come home and it's all roses. And so 
oddly enough, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on mental health because I think it was such a grind. It was like, we got to get through, we got to save people. We got to, you know, there's no room for sort of reflection and thought. Um, And as my parents have gotten older, they're both uh, whole food plant-based people. They meditate all the time. They grow their own plants and vegetables. And like they, to see their evolution has been really interesting. And in a way, I think while I wasn't in their profession, I feel like my mental health journey kind of mirrors theirs. I think as I've gotten Uh older, I started going to therapy in 2018 for the first time. Um, I allow myself to pause a little bit more. I think I recognize the need for uh, for really prioritizing mental health and also the impact that has on my physical well-being. Yeah. So there's a couple of really interesting things in that, right? How we just sort of subscribe to our parents' way of doing things in that way, which of course we know. <laughs> and so their grind, you, you know, then you're on that grind too. And then you don't necessarily feel that permission, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an astute observation. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, you're a parent, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Two little yeah. girls. Two little mm-hmm. girls. And I think that as we know, as parents, you can tell your kids how to behave and what to do and what not to do. And you can tell them right from wrong, but you are showing them. That's right. right. They're not going to listen to anything you say. They're going to model your behavior. And I think that's absolutely true in my family. I think um, hard work, like real, true, gritty hard work was rewarded. Um, and and so, yeah, that's something I've always prioritized. But I, but, but I will say, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, as a mental health professional, I do think that um, there is so much emphasis on self-care. Mm-hmm. And this may be a controversial take in this context, but mm-hmm. while I think it's important, I also think that there are certain times in life that are meant to be a grind. Mm. They're meant to be hard. And if you can't pause for that self-care in a season of life, it doesn't mean you're failing yourself. And I yes. think I worry a little bit about like that piece of self-care these days, like that it's a box that, cause I know I felt that way where yes. I'm not prioritizing self-care for better, or for worse. And it's a box that I'm no longer checking. And so then it becomes another failure. failure Do you know what yes. I mean? Oh, totally. What, what are your thoughts on that? I think it fits in with this, this kind of culture of toxic positivity too. That's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. And, and there, there's, there's got to be room for all of it, which sometimes means, yeah, I don't have time for the, the meditation or even the, the shower or whatever it might be because I'm surviving or because I had to prioritize X, Y, or Z. So I absolutely agree. I think that there is, there's been a swing and this is how most things work, right? Like we, we tend to, we swing until we can maybe find that equilibrium of like, what's, what, what is a healthy balance of things? Yeah, I think you're right. So I think that's an awesome observation because it is, we're so good at recognizing all the things that, um, that we're failing at or we're, that we aren't good at, right? So um, we don't want self-care to fall into that category. Exactly. So it's like there's, it's, there's seasons for really focusing on it and there's seasons for not. Just like there are seasons for really being career oriented. And then sometimes it's, I'm going to put that on the back burner to prioritize my family. And, you know, I think all of our priorities as human beings ebb and flow based on what's happening in our lives. Yeah. So maybe the power though is, do we feel like we can ask for what we need in any of those seasons? Yeah. So if I'm, if I, if I'm just on the grind and I don't ever feel like I can set a boundary or can kind of pause and ask myself what I need, then that's not great. But just, do I feel like I have that permission or the ability to do that kind of the self-awareness to do that sometimes? I think that's, I think that's right. Yeah. So, so starting so young um, in the industry, how does that impact one's mental health and just being in in that world and doing big things and 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 fast paced environment and all of that? Ugh, I think I'm I think I'm still figuring it out. I think, um, you know, if my mental health journey was sort of a linear line like a graph, I think mm-hmm. I'm sort of in like the the first quadrant mm-hmm. of it, if not even earlier. Um, you know, it's funny that time, especially modeling where like your physical self is the priority and work ethic has nothing to do with it. Professionalism has nothing to do with your success. Um, How you treat people has nothing to do with your success. It's really heady. And I feel like when I have friends who 
have children who might be interested in and ask my opinion, I say, don't do it because it's kind of one of the only industries in the world where hard work or focus or effort or diligence is not rewarded. Um, And that was really tough for me. And it's actually why I started studying acting was because all my friends were in college and I literally just wanted something to read. And this Mm -hmm. was 2005 when you couldn't do all online courses. You could if you were a full-time student of a college, but that all online wasn't available at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I started acting because I could just sort of read scripts and talk to someone about them. Um, but it was it was interesting, like in so many ways, I think it really, um, I, I didn't have a schedule and there was no routine in my life. And um, there were a lot of sort of really problematic patterns going on. However, I lived in a model apartment with, mm. I say, sometimes I say eight, sometimes I see 13 because the number fluctuated, but with Mm -hmm. several women in three bedrooms and it was a model apartment. So we're talking like the most beautiful women in the world were my roommates. And at a very, very young age, I think the first time I went there, I was 17. I realized that this beauty that at the time, especially everyone was aspiring to a very specific version of beauty, which now thank goodness has broadened. But um, at that time, it was incredibly specific. And I saw that that beauty did not equate to happiness. Mm. And it was such a gift because it really allowed me to silo this beauty, this idea, this commodity that really would make me successful in, in the industry. It allowed me to sort of silo it in its mm. own bucket and, um, and, and, and sort of realize that that wasn't the key to happiness. Mm. And... And I don't know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful, not for other people's sadness by any means, but I'm so grateful to have had that experience at a young age because I saw quickly that success in the industry wasn't going to make me happy in my personal life. What an amazing distinction. Yeah. And it just, I, I just had the privilege, not the privilege, again, it was not a positive thing, but I got to see that play out in real time. And it was a real yes. lesson at a very young age. Well, and thank goodness you were able to grasp that though. I mean, because so many others go the other way with it and totally buy into this idea that success equals happiness. Therefore, I must achieve this, this, you know, no matter what. And then that looks like so many issues with self-image or body image or eating disorders or um, any of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, gosh, it's such a you know, now having a daughter, I'm like, did I play a part in this sort of like toxic cycle of media? And I I did, it was my job, you know, and it's, it's so weird. It's such a weird, I don't know. My experience was, was I think um, at the time unique and, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm incredibly grateful for it, but I also don't recommend anyone do it. You know? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Because of how fine a line that is though. But can you say more about that? Like almost, did I play a part in this toxicity, even though it was your job? Yeah. I mean, I, I know that I did. I did, you know, my, my senior, when I was in high school, my like senior thesis was on like how media affects, uh-huh. uh, psychologically affects young girls. And I know I played a part in that. Um, you know, yeah. And, and it, and it had an effect on me too, because my body type wasn't the right body type at the time. And there were all sorts of factors at play, but, um, I mean, am I the cause of like the sort of affected media? Of course not. But like, I was part of the machine, you know, that perpetuated this like false ideal. And again, that's, that's how you made money. I mean, that, that was your, that was your job. And so now do you think that impacts how, you know, one of the reasons that I think people are drawn to you is your authenticity on social media. And, and so do you think that that maybe impacts the, the way that you show up and the, the real that you bring to that? A hundred percent. I mean, I think when I, when I look at sort of the genesis of my social media existence, if you look at social media now, it's a greatest hits album right? Like it's people's, it's the glossy version of their life, themselves, their work, whatever it is. It's girl boss and girl power and all this stuff. Like it's this very Mm -hmm. heightened, unrealistic version of self. When I started social media, I was not even acting yet. And so like quite literally my career, I, I had no voice. Sports Illustrated swimsuit at the time 
thank God for them. They actually like wrote a profile of the women in the magazine. They put your name under your picture. They welcomed all sorts of body types. Like they were so ahead of the game in that way. Um, and so when I look at my career, my career was my greatest hits album. It was me in full hair and makeup and full body makeup, beautiful lighting, professional photographers. It was all Photoshopped. It was this glossy, hyper, um, you know, glamorized version of myself. And it so did not feel like who I was. Mm. So when I started social media, it was an opportunity to be so candid and so myself and so not my greatest hits album. And it was so liberating for me at the time because I actually got to have a voice and share opinions. And those words were attached to my name. And that was such a gift for me at that point in my career. And, and so for me, my entry into social media was all about being totally candid and and all about, I don't authenticity. I feel like it's, I don't know if, I feel like it's such a buzzword right now, but it's true for me. It was all about sort of being my full self. And so I don't really know how to use it any other way. Mm. That's beautiful because that's all any of us want is to be seen. And so that's an interesting take on, well, we all saw you, but we, we didn't see you until you really had the voice and your words to put with it. I think that's so powerful. It was such a gift. I mean, it's obviously we've seen it as a tool, you know, it's weaponized so easily. Uh, But I also think it can be such a connector and such a gift. And some of my favorite moments on social media are when, you know, I I remember I posted something like I have this mole on my neck and my son called it a nipple. And I just posted (laughs) that. And like the stories I got from other moms about the things that their toddlers have said to them, like the gory, gruesome things there. It was such a bonding moment with total strangers. And it was like, we all felt seen. We all heard each other. We all laughed together. And it's like in those moments, you realize it can be a really powerful tool for candor and and authenticity. It really can. That's right. That's right. And you've chosen to use your platform for good and activism and all of those things as well. And so I can tell that you're intentional with how you use it in that way too. Yeah. I mean, it, in many ways I am. And in many ways I'm not like, I probably should put more thought into it because it is sort of our permanent record now. Um, but, but yes, I think I, again, I, I, it's stuff that matters to me. I talk about and you know, the politics, the activism, I think uh, now more than ever is so important. If you have any level of like influence, I think it's your duty to use your sphere of influence for good. Um, and that's what I've tried to do on some small scale. Love it. Um, how did you guys decide to move to Charlotte um, with your kids being so young? What was the impetus for that? Oh, well, I grew up in Matthews, North Carolina, outside of Charlotte. And we, my husband and I met when I was living in New York and he's from Austin and we lived in Austin for 11 years together. Um, we had our two kids there and we were never leaving. Austin was, to me, it's still one of my favorite cities in the world. It's a utopia. I love it. But when you have kids, everything changes. And my brother lives in Charlotte. He and his wife have three kids. Uh, they're two older, are the same ages as ours. And all of a sudden it was like, I need my mom. I need my parents. I want to be close to family. Um, you know, it just, that, that really was the driving force behind it. And this is so privileged, but we still have a place in Austin and the plan was to go back and forth and then COVID happened. So we've been in Charlotte full time mm-hmm. for the last year and a half. And my parents just moved into our backyard. We literally have like a little compound. Mm. Um, it's funny. Like, I think I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I feel like as Americans, or maybe it's Western culture, not American culture, we've moved away from having the community raise our kids. You know, we really, everything's right. so individual and the focus is on the individual family unit. And that felt, I, we, when we lived in Austin, we literally lived in the woods and we were very isolated. And all I wanted was community. I just mm-hmm. wanted family. And Charlotte gave us that opportunity. Yes. Girl, I'm all about like, I don't know what I am doing. So I need all of the village. <laughs> yes. yes. I mean, I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but last weekend, three of my best girlfriends live in Charlotte and we all kind of moved there at the same time. And uh, our husband's, had like a, they came to the mountains, they had like a little trip together. And so we said, why don't we just everyone stay at my house, bring all the kids and the four of us will just like manhandle these nine children. I love it. So from six months to eight years, we had nine kids under one roof and we were like, all right, you take breakfast, you get laundry, you do this, you take shower. And it was so 
I was like, oh, this is how people have done it for centuries. Yes. Why would we move away from this incredible way to raise our kids? I mean, it was a dream. And so I want more of that. I want more of like, let's, let's let the collective do this. I love that. Together, you know? And let's just use that as a segue too. So not just parenting, but in general, like why do we feel like we need to accomplish on our own and have the accolades on our own? Like let's, we don't get there unless we all get there. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Or even just in this mental health conversation, like as we are trying to normalize and end stigma and everything, the more we can understand that we're all in it together, the better. We're better. I mean, how many times have we all as individuals, therapy or not, had conversations with loved ones where we have a really vulnerable moment? I mean, especially I've had a lot of those with, you know, being a mother, especially going from one child to two, it was a really hard transition for me. And I would have these really tough conversations and I would start crying. And I was like, this is so much harder than I thought. And to have other people, friends or family say, yeah, I've been there or I am there, or thank you for saying that. Or finally, I feel less alone. I think, especially as it pertains to mental health, to have that community and that collective, it just makes us feel like we're not on this path alone because we're not. We're That's not. Right. That's right. I love it. So can you speak to, I mean, you're, so you're, you're married to someone who also is in the public eye. And um, so you, again, probably have to be a lot more intentional, you know, than I do about how, how you do your day to day and how you do this family life. And surely that impacts mental health too, because you have to really be thoughtful, a lot more thoughtful about everything. I'm sure. Can you speak to that at all? I think what, I think what it's done, well, it's two things. One is I really, uh, really prioritize my kids' privacy, I think more than I would if if I didn't wasn't married to someone who was known or I wasn't somewhat known. I think um, knowing how candid I am about my own life experiences, my instinct is to be that way about my children and with my kids. But like we said earlier, you know, social media is a permanent record. And so I feel really protective that if and when they ever choose to engage in social media, that what they put out there is totally their footprint and not mm. sort of the story that I've created about them. But that's hard because it does go against sort of every personal instinct because I love sort of just laying it all out there. So <laughs> that's been very intentional. And I think the only thing I can really think of that's been intentional based on sort of our circumstances is the impact we have on people mm. and the impact my kids have on people. And I want to get your thoughts on this too, but I grew up in a sort of lower working class family. Um, We, you know, didn't have a lot, couldn't afford to play a lot of sports, public school kid, you know, just a total sort of, you know, I remember we watched the Titanic and I was like, we would be in first class. My mom was like, honey, no, our family would be at the bottom of the boat. And it's like, I had no idea that we didn't have money until sort of other kids started talking about it at school. I had no idea. Um, but I say that because the life that I have now couldn't be further from the experience and life that I had as a child. And I think that's true for so many of us, not just because of financial circumstances, but because of social media and technology and access to information. I think we're all raising kids in a world that we didn't grow up in. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering how in the world do I navigate that? And how in the world do I protect my kids and give them this childhood that I so treasured, but mm-hmm. also you know, really consider their impact as kids who have so much access and privilege? Like, what does that look like? And and. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're taking it day by day, figuring it, it out. Yeah. There is no hand, there is no handbook. So it's not, it's, I imagine it's gotta be a lot of really thoughtful conversations that you and Andy have together about family values and how to uphold those. Who's around our kids? Who's raising our kids? You know, where, where are they playing? What sports are they doing? It's, it's, and I think, I think we're all having those conversations now. Sure after last year, sure. what does my life look like and the people in my life look like? Um, but, but yes, I think some of that's also due to sort of our personal circumstances. Sure. Um, so therapy started in 2018. What's something that, how, how has it enhanced or helped your life? Oh, well, yeah. it has, I mean, for me, it was, I like to talk through things all the time. Obviously you can tell I'm a bit of a talker and I like to do that with family and friends. And the reason I went to therapy is because I, not to get too political, but I know you're political and you know, I'm political. (laughs) I had, I have very different, um, 
values and political beliefs from my extended family. And it all came to a head in 2018, um, big head. And, and, and I was feeling really isolated in my family because I felt mm. um, like I was on this sort of like liberal island and I couldn't understand why people weren't agreeing with me or seeing my point of view. And that was really, really tough. And I think so many people after 2016 felt that. I think as sort of these parties got more polarized, I think people felt more than ever, oh my gosh, my parents are making decisions that I would never think they would make. And, and it, you know, not, it wasn't my parents specifically, but um, we just, it, it all came to a head. And I, it really got me pretty hysterical and disappointed and upset and angry and all these things. And I think a lot of women were really angry in 2016 and, and are still very angry with good reason, mm-hmm. but I just needed to talk to someone about it yeah. outside family because it was so loaded and so fraught. And so the biggest gift that therapy gave me, and I stopped in the pandemic and I need to go back, but the biggest thing that it gave me was I didn't feel crazy. Hmm. And not that my family was gaslighting me because I don't want to throw them under the bus in that way, but I did feel like, am I losing Mm -hmm. it? Why am I Mm -hmm. myself in these feelings and thoughts and beliefs? And I felt so validated mm. and it, not that that's what therapy's for. It's not to tell you you're right, but I just felt so safe having these really like sharing my beliefs and my politics when I, maybe in my family, I didn't feel as comfortable doing that because it was always met with resistance. Always, 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 always. Mm-hmm. And it felt so nice to do that in a no strings attached relationship. Yeah. And, and also what it allowed me to do was sort of, when I went back to my family and had a lot of these conversations, it allowed me to sort of look at those conversations from a bird's eye view instead of sort of being in it and on the yes. ground, you know? Yes. And that so allowed me to hear people more, to listen better. Instead of getting defensive as a sort of a first response, I would really sort of take a few breaths and just listen to what they were saying and where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. And it was an unbelievable gift and to, to, to me and my family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are you most proud of? I am most proud of how awesome my kids are, which I realize now having two kids that are so different from each other, it has nothing to do with us. They totally come out the way they come out, which, you know, I got to be honest with my first kid, he was kind of a saint and I was feeling really confident. Like, oh yeah, I figured this whole parenting thing out. My second one came out and she's a hellraiser. And oh, it has nothing to do with us. They just come out with these beautiful personalities we have to love them and mm-hmm. usher them and support them and all these things. And so their them their little selves and 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 their thoughts and beliefs and actions, I'm so proud of that. Yeah. And then I, I'm pretty proud of the way I feel like I treat people. I hope mm-hmm. why she get like a lot of responses where she was awful to me. But I feel like I'm really intentional and thoughtful with the way that I treat people and I try to be really inclusive. Mm-hmm. And that's been a deliberate choice. For a very long time and I'm and I'm really proud of that. Yes. I am. What is there just like a like a badass moment in your life that you're like, if I could just relive that or frozen that moment in time, like what comes to mind? Okay. So this is gonna be crazy because because like the actual physical pain. But like pushing out a child. Oh my God. It's and what? I was ripped up. I was ripped to shreds. Okay. It was not a cute experience. But like that animal experience bad ass and and again I think no matter if you want a mother no matter how that child comes into your life that moment happens you become Mm -hmm. a mother and it is animalistic and it is incredible but that to me was like I remember saying that moment I want to do this 10 more times and my doctor looked at me like I was crazy because literally I just ripped myself but um TMI there but I was uh, it was just the most euphoric high yes. I've ever felt. It's amazing. We're human bodies are amazing. Female bodies. They're amazing. They want to heal. You know, they want to heal. They want to work for us. They're they want to be these well-oiled machines. They're so amazing. I mean, I I'm so grateful that I. This is gonna sound a little crazy, but. I, I had a, and it, I don't care. I'm wearing makeup right now, so I don't care what anyone does with makeup. But I had a mother who a lot of the time didn't wear makeup and 
always talked about always when I saw other women was like, oh my gosh, look how hot she is. Or, oh my gosh, look at her riding that bike. She's like, looks like an athlete or, oh my gosh, you know, she would just, she would always talk about the beauty physical or otherwise in other women. And I don't know if that's why, but I've always had such a healthy relationship to my physical self. And I think in large part because of my mom, because instead of feeling, I never felt like she was restrictive. I never felt like, you know, she was insecure about other women or other women made her feel insecure. It was always like empowerment, empowerment, empowerment. Mm. I don't even think that was intentional. It's just who my mom is. And so, yeah, I've always had, I mean, that's fluctuated, you know, like I definitely did really restrictive things when I was modeling. I had unhealthy, probably biases because of the industry, but I'm so grateful that generally speaking, I just had a real, I just like, am grateful for this body and what it can do and mm-hmm. all of its fluctuations with and without pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and I, and I can only attribute that to my mom and her relationship with her body, because I think it's just, it was modeled for me. I don't know. I mean, you know, I think my husband's an athlete, so he's always about what makes me feel physically well today. And he's one of those people who like, he needs to sweat every day or he gets in his head, you know, like he needs that mental clarity and that comes from sort of sweating. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's a really great example for sort of like taking care of this vessel. I think I sort of contrary to my husband, am someone who is like everything in moderation, like you want those French fries, eat those French fries, you know, enjoy life is to be enjoyed. And and that includes a meal with friends that includes taking a week off of being physical, or that includes being physical, like whatever that looks like to you, finding that balance is so important. And I think that's sort of my relationship to, you know, body and health is, is it's all in moderation. You know, there are months where I'll be really diligent and really um, habitual with you know, exercise and meditation and mm-hmm. good food and all of this. And then there are times when I'm not. And I think, I don't know, I, 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 I hope that that gives her sort of, I hope that that models for her that there are mm-hmm. many ways to have a relationship with your body and they're all beautiful as long as you're taking care of it. Mm-hmm. And if taking care of it means relaxing for a month or two or a week or two or a day or two, great, do it. Yes, sister. So I'm a eating disorder body image therapist. And so this is all the language that we use, you know, all foods fit in moderation. What's your, like, I always use that phrase of your relationship with your body. What's your relationship with food? Um, How do you fuel your body? So even just the way you talk about Andy talking about it, it being a vessel and just trusting and listening that inner wisdom we have about our bodies and just our physical cues. If we listen to that. I think that's a powerful tool. I mean, I think that goes to like, Mm-hmm. I think that's applied to people too. Like what are, what are, what listen to yourself. Cause typically there's something in there that's throwing up a red flag or telling you this feels right. And I think we, I know me personally, I'm not good at trusting myself and my own instincts. And mm-hmm. I think that they're all there for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you may think otherwise, cause this is sort of coming at it from more of a spiritual thing. And, and, and you may think differently because it's more psychological and scientific, but I, I think you're right. I think like your body and your mind do tell you a lot. They do clue you into a lot if you listen to them. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is that society can, you know, culturally the message is to look externally. <laughs> so we'll tell you what you should look like. We'll tell you what you should be eating. We'll tell you what, you know, that kind of the shoulds and shouldn'ts. And so we really have gotten away from that inner wisdom. And I think that's why people are drawn to things like yoga or meditation or things that really teach you to relearn trusting yourself. It's just, it's a powerful, it's a powerful tool. I mean, for Mm -hmm. you knowing that this is your field of expertise, like what does a mother of a young girl do? What are the things you tell mothers to make sure, I mean, not make sure, but like how much, I guess the better question is how much can we wait parenting as it pertains to that and how much can we wait sort of culture and society and school friends and all of that. Oh, totally. So it's, it's the language, um, the language you're using around food, body exercise, all of that. And what you're modeling, like, like you said about your mom, it wasn't even necessarily that she was having explicit conversations with you about what she was doing. You saw it. You didn't hear her making body shaming comments. You didn't see her going on, you know, fad diets all the time. Right. That kind of thing. And the other thing is one of the biggest things is being a a critical or conscious consumer of media. 
Mm. So from very early on, we've talked to our girls about, uh, my example I always use is um, Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Think about Ariel, think about Ursula, right? Mm-hmm. Who's the bad guy? Who's the, you know? And so I have always been the mom that kind of, and I do this around race and um, disabilities, things like that too. Like, what are the characters you're seeing? Why do you think that is? Why do you think we don't see this? You know, and so just being, making sure that they know they can question that. Yeah, yeah. That's so powerful. Yeah. And it's hard once you start doing that. Cause sometimes my husband's like, okay, Juliet, reel it in. Like just let them watch the movie. <laughs> and I'm like, dissect this. Yeah. <laughs> right. But like they, it's because I'm just so hyper aware of it. Um, but I want, yeah. Cool. That's a great tool. That's a great piece of advice to mm-hmm. question things as they're sort of playing out because it's giving them permission to question things. Books too, right? So when you're reading bedtime stories, it's, it shows up there too. Um, and it, or just like from a feminist perspective, why do you think the girl always needs to be saved? You know, it just kind of have, just asking those questions so that they know they can be curious about it. Yeah. <sighs> it's exhausting though. It's hard. Well, there are just so many things and, and, and I was going to say, there's so many things to be aware of, but I also think what a gift right? that now there are so many things to be aware of and we are more cognizant. I think when our parents were raising us, they probably weren't aware of some of the conversations they should have been having or could have been having. Right. And and obviously the parents before them, far less. And so it does feel like it's it can be daunting, sort of all of the intersectionality and all the things we mm-hmm. want to expose our kids to, but what a gift that we're aware of those now. It's so true. And obviously recognizing that it's a privilege for us to be able to say, this is really hard for us to do. Like we're not living a lot of those um, things in the way that marginalized people are, right? So just feel like that's worth pointing out. What other kind of go-to self-care coping skills do you utilize? My, it's funny, I've been thinking about this um, because I do say meditation, but I don't do it often. I honestly do it in the form of like sleep stories, which I don't know of sleep stories. Oh yeah. They've been life-changing for me. I'll do like a little nap one or I'll do a night, but it's just sort of that it allows my brain to shut down. Yes. And so it's not true meditation, but that allows me to really shut things sort of off, which is nice. For me, when I look back at like when things are hectic or when there's been a huge swell in, uh, in professional energy or personal energy or whatever it is, when I get sort of come back down. Nature's always the most grounding. Mm-hmm. Like I'm actually having this conversation with you and I'm looking out at a, a bald face mountain right now. And when I look at sort of like the busiest moments of my life, like a big premiere or a big tour, or a big something, I get my best girlfriend or my husband or whomever, my parents, and we go to like the Grand Canyon or we go on a hiking trip or we go camping. And I grew up camping all the time. Uh, my parents were mountain bikers. They used to race. So we were always in the woods. And so that always brings me back down, mm-hmm. uh, literally and figuratively grounding. Yes. But that to me, whenever I, even like someone told me when, it might've been my grandma, when I had my daughter and she was a colicky baby. Mm-hmm. So she cried all the time the first six months. And my grandma said, if you go outside, you take your shoes off, you're barefoot and you just stand on the earth. It is so grounding for you and baby and they'll calm down. And it's so true how powerful nature is. And I think we have to be so intentional with plugging into it, but that for me has always been meditative. It's always provided so much clarity yes. and I'm so high and happy from it. Yes. Uh, but that's always been my thing. It's always been nature. Yeah. I get that. The grounding. I, I love that. What's the best professional advice you've ever received? <laughs> oh, you, you know, so I work with this woman named June Diane Rayfield, who's an actress and comedian and writer, and she's brilliant. Um, she's on Grace and Frankie with me. And she's been so powerful for like my professional journey because I think as, and I don't know if you, I don't know much about birth order, but I feel like I'm classic first child. I'm like, I, yes, a doer. I follow rules. I check boxes. I do all those things. <laughs> and she's someone who taught me within the last few years that you can be the person in the room who knows the most. And mm. I mean that from like a talent perspective, like, because you, as an actor, you're on set and you have a director telling you one thing and a writer telling you one thing and other actors, and there's all these opinions, right? And and a lot of times those opinions aren't real opinions. It's just because people want to feel the need to be a part of the conversation so that they can add their worth or their value on a set. And for her to tell me, sometimes you know best. Mm. What that did was it was so powerful because it took me out of this like 
okay, I'll do it. I'll try it. Whatever you say. And really grounded me in trusting my instincts. Back to and that's that. not to say that you're always right. It's not to say, I think if you're the smartest person in the room all the time, you're doing it wrong. I think you should always try to not be the smartest person in the room. But that advice just gave me so much permission to, or gave me the permission to listen to myself. Mm-hmm. And also this is probably, there's probably some psychological stuff here, but the way that people treated me for so long, I thought it was about myself. I thought it was about me. Like mm-hmm. I did something or, oh gosh, they don't like me. Or I must've said something to throw them off or whatever. And very recently, like too late in life, I realized that most people react and act and their behavior is based on whatever's happening inside them that day. And it probably has nothing or very little to do with me. And I think I took on so much of that. Oh gosh, in a scene, did I did I not support them enough? Did I not? And they probably had a really bad call before they walked to set that day, you know, and it has nothing to do with me. And so what it did is it, I don't know. I, I, I sort of later in life realized that like the world doesn't revolve around me and people's actions don't revolve around me. I realized it way too late. Um, and that everyone sort of has their own journey and that's who, who we see at work specifically professionally. Mm-hmm. They're walking into that place with all sorts of stuff behind mm-hmm. them, all sorts of stuff going on and very little, um, or, or, or not very often does it have to do with yeah. you or something. There's, there's so much more room when you realize that, right. And just more fluidity yes. and, and less responsibility. <laughs> Yes. And you also, I think, instead of being so heady or in your own head about something you might've done, you become more empathetic. And compassionate. Totally. Like, what are they going through? What's their journey? What's the journey that they walked today that made them have a really bad day or, or act out in that meeting or whatever the thing is? Like, it allowed, yeah, it allowed me to really, again, like, listen to people. Yeah. See their journey more than making it about something I may or may not have done. Yeah. And again, I think our kind of our our theme appears to be just yeah like this inner wisdom and so she, yeah. so i like that and and the way that mental health fits into our self image is so important so being able to know that like sometimes you do know what what you want and what you can stand for or how to advocate for yourself and then there comes in some some like gender stereotypes around this too that as females we often are told to play small or or to not speak up in that way or to stand up yeah totally. to take up That's space I, I have a hard, I have a hard time taking up space professionally. And, and one exercise, it was a Ted talk. And actually I did this, um, I was with a bunch of high school students and they taught it to me, which was like so powerful. And I think goodness, we're learning this now at 15 and not at 30, but you know, like you, you literally make a huge X with your body before doing a big meeting, an audition, an interview, whatever it is, you have big X with your body. You take a few deep breaths and you literally take, you occupy space in mm. whatever room you're in. And that allows your body and yourself to take up more space. And like that little exercise was so powerful to it me. Is. High schoolers. Like wow. How good. That? Good. I hope they show up that way. That's, yes. that's amazing. Me too. I was really excited about that. Yes. And I feel like with wisdom and, you know, with age comes wisdom and we get to understand the people that we allow in our lives to, or the jobs maybe we say yes to are the ones in which we feel we can take up that space or our friends are the ones that celebrate our largeness and our space taking up, you know, as well. And that, that, that's a beautiful thing. I, I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And I think also with age is, I love being in my mid thirties because I think in your twenties, you're still figuring out like who you are in this world. And I think we all, I don't know if you feel this way. I still, I feel like a, the, your life's purpose is an ongoing journey until the day that you die. For sure. But I think in your twenties, there is this like, who am I? What's my identity? Who are my friends? And in your thirties, you can just settle into that a little bit more. And you can say, Hey, I met this person. They're lovely. We can be acquaintances. I don't have space for them in my life as a friend. Yes. And that I wouldn't have the confidence to do in my twenties. I would yes. think like, maybe I'm missing out on something. Maybe they're awesome and I don't know it. But I think in your thirties, you really start to recognize who can offer you the space to expand. Yes. Ooh. Who gives you that, you know, who gives yes. you that, space, who gives you that encouragement and, and who you can be that for as well. Yes. And that comes, I think that comes later. It did for me at least. Yes, I agree. Uh, mentors in your life? My parents have been like huge, uh, sort of North stars, mm-hmm. uh, because they just, man, they're awesome people. They just mm-hmm. really are awesome, awesome people. I have so many friends who, um, 
who have been that for me without being mentors. Yeah. Uh, and then I have, you know, I have a manager who is my professional manager, but was my modeling agent who I met when I was 16 years old. And we kind of grew up in the industry and did many career pivots together. And so I don't know if it's a mentor necessarily as much as it's sort of right. kind of a partner in crime who's yeah. sort of been there and been a pillar for me at times. And I've been a pillar for him at times. And um, and that's been a really powerful relationship in my life as well. Yeah, how lucky that that's been such a consistent relationship for two decades. Yeah, I know. I yeah, know. yeah. So someone I admire, I wouldn't call him a mentor. We can't, you know, <laughs> can't pump him up too much. But uh, <laughs> um, he is my husband, Andy. He, you know, we met, we were very young. I was 19 and he was 24. And yep. he was um, living this sort of professional journey and having this professional independence from a very young age and has given me so much permission to, or given me permission to say no and take up space and, and, and be selfish when I need to be selfish in a way that I would not have before I met him. Cause he yeah. gives no F's yeah. and I give many more. But it's a good I balance, love, right? It is a good balance. It's, we're a great, yes. Yes. We're a great <laughs> balance. Yeah, that's how it great. works over here too. Oh, relationship. Yes. Uh, yes. So, okay. Crazy question time. I didn't prep, prep you with these. Ooh. So, all right. Favorite cocktail. Oh, I'm big on this one lately. That's tequila, Aperol, Luxardo, which is a cherry liqueur, lime juice, and a Luxardo cherry. And you shake it all up together. And it's like, it's, it's a, it's, it works in the summer, but it's sort of a heavier tequila drink with the tartness of an Aperol. So it's like an awesome winter tequila drink. And I was drinking it all quarantine. It's excellent. Yes. Favorite band or musician? Okay. People give me so much hell for this. Sorry, I keep cussing. But uh, Dave Matthews Band, I've seen them 25 times. Brooklyn! I'm obsessed. Okay. Sorry. Can Sorry. I? No, why are you ashamed? Can I just tell you this? Because this is going to be a freak out moment too. My husband, his 36th show this summer. What? So you uh, are talking to the right person about this. I just think they don't get enough credit. Like he has been singing about race, pop, I know. sexism, inclusion. He's been singing about all of this their entire career. Yes. Like people view them as this fratty band and like their ethos could not be more different. I mean, I I'm know. Just, and God. not to mention the musicality, like they are sick. It's crazy. Unbelievable. I, they're yes. just all of them, like individually best drummer, best guitarist, like yes. it, come together. I know. I know. I just could talk about them for hours. Person can be dead or alive, that you would go to a Dave show and drink your favorite cocktail with, who would it be? You could pick anybody. Ooh, person dead or alive. Um, okay, so my friends have recently gotten me on to James Baldwin uh, and I read two of his books and I he was having the conversations we're having now in the 60s, which is both disheartening, but also so inspiring. Um, just about race and justice and, and, and religion and his rejection of religion, but also the appreciation of the ritual of religion and all of these things that I think about way too much. Um, and I, I just find him to be so brave in spirit and, and he's no longer with us, but he's someone who uh, I think would really enjoy seeing Dave Matthews. Let's <laughs> change, you know, this like multicultural, yes you know, like multiracial group who is like one, the most successful touring group of all time, yeah. just rocking out. I think this that is dreamy. dreamy. Yeah, exactly. Um, last one, most ideal date. Mm, most ideal date would be some sushi dinner, which so means it couldn't be in Charlotte. Um, <laughs> some like amazing sushi dinner. Uchiko's our favorite sushi place in Austin. There would be a concert involved. There would be a hike. It would be like a hike and then a sushi dinner and then a concert. And then uh, we would like dance to hip hop music in our house until three in the morning. And so all of that, it would be like a 10 hour date. And that would be, that would be my dream. Thank you so much. This was just glorious. Thank you. Thanks for the space and the time to do this. I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. I love our part of the conversation where we talk about how to speak with our children about body image and self-image, but I want to remind us that it's also about how we talk to ourselves or with our peers around these subjects. So I want you to just start to notice how many comments people make around food and body. For example, like, 
oh, I shouldn't have eaten that or I'm going to have to run that off. You know, and either mark that in your mind as part of the diet industry and thin ideal world that we live in and remind yourself that you can reject that. And maybe you even reject it out loud to start helping change the narrative. Try to move away from labeling things as good or bad or assigning moral value because that takes us away from intuitively listening to and fueling our bodies and being grateful for what our bodies can do. And with our kids, our friends, and ourselves, try complimenting on things that have nothing to do with physical appearance. Notice someone's creativity or curiosity or energy or whatever it is because there are so many things that make us interesting that have nothing to do with what we look like. And so Brooklyn and I, we do talk a lot about this idea of listening to our inner wisdom. This can get a bit tricky because it's really not just about listening to your gut or your intuition. Sometimes this intuition isn't good at picking up flaws and it's evidence, right? So if it were absolutely pure, that'd be one thing. But our thoughts and our emotions and our inner critics certainly get in the way, along with others' expectations and standards. But we can learn to pay attention to what we're calling inner wisdom, to quiet our minds, listening and feeling for what's authentically there. Brooklyn talks a lot about things being heady, and living in our heads is another way that we hush our inner wisdom. So this happens when we think about how we should act and how we should be. And and this gets us into overthinking and competition and insecurity. But when we come from that deeper place, it's more grounded and intentional and present. So we get better at doing this by allowing more, you know, what I'll call sabbaticals and quiet time for ourselves each day. Then learning to pay attention to and observe our thoughts, feelings, and sensations. We can recognize our inner critic and meet it with compassion. Another challenge I might leave you with is to experiment with things that feel like they pique your energy and aren't just about playing it safe. So it's that idea of asking yourself what you'd do if you knew you wouldn't fail. See if you can show up in that way. Thanks so much for listening. So who are you calling crazy? I think you mean human. We are removing the stigma, y'all. Say it loud and proud. Yep. I go to therapy. Again, thank you to our title sponsor, Blooming Smiles Pediatric Dentistry, where they genuinely share kindness, patience, compassion, and fun. Just take a look at Dr. Arpita Patel's Google reviews to see how great she is with kids. And thank you to ERC, who specializes in treating patients struggling with eating disorders and related conditions, and Pathlight, who specializes in treatment for mood and anxiety disorders. Working with patients and their families, ERC and Pathlight provide innovative and evidence-based treatment programs tailored for patients of all ages, body shapes and sizes, races, ethnicities, religions, sexual identities, and gender identities and expressions.